0: times in our lives seem confusing and your world appears to be just a little too crazy go ahead and take a rest here laugh learn enjoy a little bit for the lives of others with author and business coach
1: Dennis Mansfield then share it with others because joy is just around the corner welcome to just around the corner I'm Dennis Mansfield join me as I travel give commentary on cultural events of the past and the present, and as I review entertainment trends and passions. Hope you enjoy the show today. Along with the work that I enjoy doing here on the podcast, creating the episodes that we uh, get to put out and that you get to listen to, is the uh, responsibility that I have as an author as well as an author, I've written eight books, getting ready to start in on the research for my ninth, and and that really creates in me an opportunity to look around at other authors and see what they're writing and see what they're saying. And one of the ones that I really enjoy is Anne Lamott. Now, Anne had a syndicated TED Talk from February of 2019 that that really. Creased my mind when I first came across it. Daily Good News uh, that inspires, put it out as a, an email, and her opening quote on this thing simply says, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are and does not leave us where it found us. That was her opening quote, and I thought, well, let's find out what she has to say. She wrote a piece called 12 Truths I Learned from Life and Writing, And I want to thank her for that, and I want to share them with you from her author perspective to me as an author, from my author perspective to you. For example, uh, Anne begins the process of illustrating the 12 points by starting to say this. She says, the first and the truest thing is that all truth is a paradox. Life is both a precious, uh, beautiful gift, and it's impossible here on the incarnational side of things. To make sense of. It's been a very bad match for those of us who were born extremely sensitive. It's so hard and weird that we sometimes wonder if we're being punked in our life. It's filled simultaneously with heartbreaking sweetness and beauty, along with desperate poverty, floods and babies, acne and Mozart, all swirled together. I don't think it's an ideal system. So number one, that all truth is a paradox. Number two, she says, almost everything will work again if you just simply unplug it for a few minutes, including you. You know, I think that is an absolute truth. In my own life, unplugging myself once a year to go to Catalina Island with my family, I enjoy that. Replug in, ready to go. Her number three is this: there's almost nothing outside of you that will help in any kind of lasting way unless you're waiting. For an organ. (laughs) She's got a great sense of humor. Now you can't buy, you can't achieve, you can't date serenity, and you can't date peace of mind. This is the most horrible truth, and I so resent it, she says. But it's an inside job, and we can't arrange peace or lasting improvement for the people we love most in the world. They have to find their own ways, too. Our help is usually not very helpful, she says. Our help is often toxic, And help is the sunny side of control. Stop helping so much, she says. Don't get your help and goodness all over everybody. Number four. That brings us to a number that most people don't want to really think about. And that is this. Number four. Everyone is screwed up. We're broken. We're clingy. We're scared. Even the people who seem to have it together. They're much more like you than you would ever believe, she writes. So try not to compare your insides to other people's outsides. And you know what? You can't save, fix, or rescue any of them or get anyone sober. One acronym for God is the gift of desperation, G-O-D. Or as my sober friend put it, by the end uh, of my own problem, she writes, I was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards. So God might mean in this case, me running out of any more good ideas. That was number four, Anne Lamont says. Number five creeps up on you and smacks you. It says this, chocolate with 75% cacao is not actually a food group. <laughs> when I read this, I just started laughing. She says, its best use is as bait in snake traps or a balance on the legs of wobbly chairs. It was never meant to be considered edible. Oh, I love that stuff. Okay. I love the idea of eating it. And why are you making me feel bad now? But the taste isn't there. She's right. Number six, writing. Every writer you know writes really terrible first drafts, but they keep their butt in the chair. That's the secret of life. That's probably the main difference between you and them. They just do it. They do it by prearrangement with themselves. They do it as a debt of honor. and I'm telling you as an author, she's absolutely right. I write every day, every day. If I'm not writing in that four-hour period in the morning, I'm reading in that, that four-hour period so that I can write. And in our lives, if you want to write, if there's a book inside of you, write and keep writing. Number seven, publication and temporary creative successes are something you have to recover from. They kill so many people. They will hurt, damage, and change you in ways you cannot even imagine. The most degraded and evil people I've ever known are male writers, she says, who've had huge bestsellers. And yet, returning to number one, that all truth is a paradox, it's also a miracle to get your work published. To get your stories read and heard, she says. Just try and bust yourself gently of the fantasy that publication will heal you that it will fill the Swiss cheesy holes inside of you. It can't. It won't. Number eight, Anne Lamott says, families. Now, when I came across this, actually, while I was originally reading it, I thought, oh, we're going to get into something nice and soft and cushy. Number eight, families. Families are hard, hard, hard. No matter how cherished and astonishing they may also be, they are a paradox. At family gatherings where you suddenly feel homicidal or suicidal, remember that in all cases, it's a miracle that any of us specifically were conceived and born. Number nine, Anne Lamott's 12, her 12 ideas. This is number nine. Food. Try to do a little better, she says. I think you know what I mean. And I think we do know what she means. Number 10, Grace. Grace is spiritual WD-40, or water wings. You see, the mystery of grace is that God loves Henry Kissinger and Vladimir Putin and me and you exactly as he as he or she, she writes in a tongue-in-cheek way, loves your new grandchild. Go figure. <laughs> Number 11, God just means goodness. It's really not all that scary. It means the divine or a... Loving, animating intelligence, or as we learn from the great deteriorata, the cosmic muffin. A good name for God is not me, she writes. And she says this. Emerson said that the happiest person on earth is the one who learns from nature the lessons of worship. So go outside. Go outside a lot. Go outside a lot and look up. My own pastor, she writes, said you can trap bees on the bottom of mason jars without Uh, lids because they don't even look up so they so just walk just go out and learn the secret of life and finally number 12 is this death number 12 wow yikes she writes it's so hard to bear when the few people you cannot live without die you'll never get over those losses no matter what the culture says you're not supposed to We Christians like to think of death as a major change of address. But in any case, the person will live again fully in your heart if you don't seal it off. Like Leonard Cohen said, there are cracks in everything, and that's that's how the light gets in. And that's how we feel our people, again, are fully alive. Anne Lamott sharing a perspective of 12 truths I learned from Life and Writing. Now, what have I learned, ladies and gentlemen, as an author? Three simple ones. I'll distill it down. One, if you desire to be an author, write on things that you're an authority about. Don't pretend to learn. Don't pretend to know. Write on what you already know. Number two, if you're going to write, write daily. You've got something to say, write daily. And number three, don't worry about publication. If your stuff is good, people, will be drawn towards it. If it's not good, you might be drawn towards it, and you may have been uh, really the only person that needed to read it. But if you've got a story inside of you, write it and don't give up. Those are the three from Dennis Mansfield. If you... Welcome to the Brown Sign Brothers from Boise. We highlight interesting places that most people just pass by at 70 miles an hour on the freeway. Exit with us, won't you? Look up ahead. There's a freeway Brown Sign. I wonder what it's saying. We love to travel. We're the Brown Sign Brothers from Boise. Dennis and Ken Mansfield, and we're here to tell you a story. Story today is about traveling down the spine of California. Maybe a better way to say this, traveling up the spine of California, because uh, for a lot of people, they understand the 99 Highway, Highway 99, that travels from just below Bakersfield all the way up to Merced and Fresno is a... Pretty boring road
0: Agriculturally speaking, it's beautiful
1: (laughs) Yes, there's money on either side But there sure aren't a lot of mountains and other things Flat, flat, flat But we started in just a little bit outside of uh, Bakersfield Uh, And when we were younger, Ken, our father would take us to Weed Patch Weed Patch, California. Don't know where it is? I don't even know that it exists anymore. But there was a certain place that we would go to that our father would take us to. What do most fathers do? Well, it wasn't quite the
0: church. It wasn't the church. No, and it wasn't uh, uh, a zoo. You had a zoo. zoo. Although there were uh, animals there. Uh, (laughs) Grandma and Grandpa owned uh, a bar in Weed Patch, California. Yes,
1: they did and it was one of those bars that you see often portrayed in films where a biker gang will show up and then the local yokel boys with the cowboy hats will beat the, you know what out of them. And then the, everybody will be, be bruised or beaten or bloodied somehow. Uh, we went there as kids. Yes. And we, we hung out on the bar at the bar on the bar stool, like monkeys all over the bar. Uh, with our grandmother and our grandfather yep. serving their trucker buddies all day long and not giving a hoot about uh, policemen no. or Child Protective Service people. <laughs> I don't even know if they had those people. I don't think we were it was young. born yet. Yeah. yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, what memories do you have of our grandmother and our grandfather? These are our paternal, our tender paternal grandmother. <laughs>
0: tender uh yeah so i my my first memory about going up there uh was that we had to walk through a trailer park for some reason to get to it i, I, I imagine that that grandma, seems
1: only fitting right i don't know and yeah. weed patch where my our grandparents lived i don't know and, and we
0: walked in and there it was like walking into a dark closet yes. only lit by Paps Blue Ribbon signs, or they had a waterfall sign. I think Joyce actually still has it. Our sister That's our Joyce sister, yeah. uh, has the waterfall from Ham's beer, or whatever yeah. Ham beer. Uh, but I, what I remember the most was my very first cocktail served to me by our loving grandmother. How old were you? I probably six or seven. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Shirley Temple of the day. I bet it was. Yes, and uh, and I. I had fun. She was. She had fun serving us. And then uh, Grandpa taught me how to play pool on uh-huh. their pool tables there that they had, and ski board, too. So that was fun.
1: That was our heritage, wasn't it? Amen. Yeah, our heritage was a grandmother who probably was the not just the. I don't want to call her a bar fly, but she was a bar maid, and uh, our grandfather who would was gentle and. Quiet and had fists like uh, sledgehammers, sledgehammers, yeah. and uh, would take truckers on and throw truckers out. And then we showed up as her progeny's progeny, and we had, were military kids, brats from a military family. And when she barked, I just remember obeying.
0: Right, absolutely. No there was question no question. <laughs>
1: I, I think it was the fact that when some people say uh, the respect of a grandparent is one sure. thing, I think it was the uh, pool cue slamming across our head that might have been the case. That, <laughs> that might have I, been
0: your case. I don't know. I,
1: I didn't want it to be my case, I guess is what I'm saying. So so the 99 takes you up. Yes. And it, and and as the years have gone on and we grew and we would travel and you and I would travel when I was in high school and I would, would take you in my little Austin Healy Sprite and we would go places. Then with Brownside Brothers from Boise, we actually were on the 99 going through Merced. We were. Something bizarre jumped out at us <laughs> in Merced, California.
0: Along the 140 stands this obelisk, 68 feet high. H- highest tombstone, I think, in California. Ooh, what an interesting fact that would be. Uh it was uh, it makes a dramatic impression near Highway 140 and Arbadella Drive in Merced. So it was to his own. Self Who uh, I'm sorry there was uh, what,
1: Oh George Hicks Wait a minute This is so Fancers. awesome we, Neither one of us Know the guy's name
0: <laughs> This See? is so This is awesome. so perfect for it yeah. It
1: is I mean we have to look At our note Both of us And go What was that guy's name Yes I mean Let's not edit that out Because that is truth Sure We have no idea Who this is George, what is George Hicks Fancer Okay So That's his,
0: his legacy. That's his memorial.
1: It's a, his Pharaoh's yes. obelisk. How did you pronounce it? Obelisk. obelisk. I guess. Sure. Sounds his, good. You know, pharaoh, Pharaoh fancer
0: uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and it was in the middle of an uh, agricultural field. We literally drove up on it and we could not believe that we could see the top of it. It looked like a missile. I did. And we're like, what is that? And we come across it and we see the sign, what it's for
1: nineteen oh five he died, I believe it was, and he set aside a thousand dollars for the rest of his ours, everybody's lives, for a memorial fund to do the upkeep on that. I mean, in today's money, that'd probably take three guys and a weed eater about three months to exhaust a thousand bucks. But uh somehow, someway, someone still is in charge of cleaning up and and as the years go on, we saw it, it was chipping away sure. and
0: bird bird residue everywhere. Everywhere. Uh you know, it was interesting that it, it says that it was it cost him twenty five or his family, twenty-five thousand dollars to create this thing. And the, wow. the architecture was beautiful. In the, in, 1905.
1: in 1911. 1911
0: yeah, nineteen oh five dollars. In nineteen eleven. Or nineteen eleven, he so. died in oh five. I okay. guess it took that long to they pickled him it out. for six years. <laughs> I don't <laughs> oh, know. Oh my gosh.
1: That's 25000 that's a lot of money today. Yeah. But in 1911...
0: What would that be? I don't even know how to calculate that. Let's
1: just give it a factor of 10 and call it okay. You know, $250,000. Yeah. For what? To say, I, I was I here. I was
0: here, yeah. This was
1: my spot. And now people drive by and go, oh, how weird. Let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just drive past it. And not even know who his name is sure. like we didn't know who his name was as we Just began this right. yeah, segment of the episode. Yep. So, so I guess for me, Ken, and I'd love to get your imprint. What was the, what was the lap sort of the lasting imprint as we got back into the truck and began the next, you know, uh, arm or leg or abdomen or, or liver or kidney <laughs> of our, of our trip sure. with the, with the Brown sign brothers. What did it leave you with?
0: It really uh, was interesting because I, I thought, wow, here's this guy who lived. Obviously, he did very well financially, whether he owned all that land or all that agriculture, however it turned out. But nobody knows his name. Nobody knows who he, did, who, who he was or what did, what did he do. But we do know that he was so egotistical and so narcissistic that he had to have a sixty-eight foot tall monument. Think built it? Wasn't one hundred and sixty-eight? Uh, sixty-eight feet. Oh, sixty-eight feet. Yep. Excuse me. But it weighs a thousand tons. Oh
1: gosh! It's made out of
0: granite. Like mean, that's that's incredible. The work that had to have happened for that. It, I don't know if the guys were laughing about it when they did it. You know, all the way to the bank. But the the job they did that's was right beautiful question.
1: work. Um, I would ask you, ladies and gentlemen, just to go online and Google George hicks fancer memorial in uh, in california and as you do that you'll see what it is kudos to john and ellen price who uh pointed us in the direction of that they live in merced and have been great friends for decades i wouldn't have believed it unless i saw it
2: welcome to movies with meg
1: Films are the parables of our lives. They always have been. Stories that tell us who we are, who we aren't, and who we can become. Join Megro and me now as we look at the films we find interesting. We hope you do as well. music is really remarkable. Even when I hear it, I feel the fabric of The Godfather 1, 2, and 3. You know, Meg, uh, this is a very special show because it uh, is a segment of the episode because it really does talk about three movies, not just one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The Godfather movies, they almost blend into being one giant epic film. It's hard to distinguish where the first one stops and the second one starts. You know, I, I watched them in pretty close succession, and, man, it's hard for me to keep them straight.
1: It's remarkable, too, because the first one was filmed in the early 70s, the second one was filmed in 74, and they, they could not get it going for the third one until years later, 15, 16 years later, at which point Godfather 3 came out.
2: Yeah, and you can see that in the actor's faces obviously they've aged i mean i think diane keaton is one of the ones that is the most uh different in the way she looks she's so young and fresh in the oh, first so one young. almost I could i didn't recognize her i was like i know who that person is i think and then you know in the most most recent one godfather three she looks like very similar to what she looks like now
1: and she never changes she is ageless <laughs> just like the film it's ageless <laughs> now um the characters of the of the sons and the daughter. Speak about them.
2: yeah, you know uh, I really believe it's the story of Michael Corleone, which he's the youngest boy and he was a marine and came back from World War II when the movie started and and he was actually dating uh, Diane King's character Kay and had had she wasn't sure what she was walking into when they when the movie started and he was very reassuring to her that he's not going to live this gangster life like his family. He's on the straight and narrow. He is a marine and he wants to serve his country proudly and uh, and then all of that changes when there's different things that happen throughout the movie and then he ends up becoming the the don, the boss. Yes,
1: he, he becomes as you've heard me say Don Corleone because in Italian that that e has that sort of why to it. But the Corleones, the Corleones, uh, he becomes the Don. Now, he's the third of three. Fredo is the oldest. And like his name, he's afraid of almost everything out there. It's short for Alfredo. But he's a weak-spined, invertebrate son with no passion and no power, except for money and except for chicks and booze and that sort of thing. And he proves himself out to be a horrible character. So much so that Don uh, Corleone is, Vito, Vito Corleone is actually shot because of Fredo's misbehavior. But Sonny is an interesting character. He's the next one to take over as the Don.
2: Yeah, but he's hot-headed and he uh, doesn't think things through and he ends up going out and and he's shot down in, in a very brutal attack.
1: That's an ambush at a toll yeah. station.
2: Yeah, it's awful. And there's no way anyone could have survived it. And so then Michael is left to take over. And Fredo, Fredo's still alive at that point.
1: Because the mother said, I don't want him to go away until I die.
2: Yeah, so once the mother dies, then their sister, uh, what's her name? Connie, Connie, that's right. Yeah, so she, she begs and pleads that Michael won't do anything to her other brother and her begging and pleading didn't do anything. Michael had him killed.
1: It's the severity of justice. And it's a severity of the mafia justice.
2: I was going to say, I don't know that that's justice, but it's definitely taking the law and the justice into your own hands.
1: Uh, th- there's a scene in Godfather one where Michael has to kill his first two um, victims. And uh, he's talked to by some of the older mafia people. And they and they're, they're, their line is, drop the gun. That's the line in it. But the actor who was portraying uh, that particular sort of uncle character, when they were shooting, made the famous line, drop the gun and take the cannoli. Now, uh,
2: yeah, and it was all ad-libbed. I totally
1: ad-libbed and funny. And it has become one of the major lines of The Godfather.
2: Yeah, I feel like everyone knows that line. Even if they don't know what it's from, they know that line. Which yeah. is, and I mean, I it think makes you want to have a cannoli. It does. Really. In fact, let's mm-hmm.
1: stop and have some cannoli right now. Yeah. Um, well, Let's wait till the show's over. <laughs> Sounds good. Oh, I'm salivating as we speak. Uh, th- there was supposed to be an intermission in Godfather 1. It was so long. Then when they made two and they made three, they said there will not be an intermission. Uh, So get it done and get it gone. Well, as two and three unfold, um, the actors and actresses stay the same. Of course, Sonny is gone, uh, played by James Caan. He's gone. Michael uh, is still there. Uh, But then by three, they bring in an actress with a very familiar last name.
2: Yeah, they bring in. Uh, what can her name? <laughs> Sophia Coppola. That's it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's great. And uh, it. yeah, go back. you know, clearly she was brought on because she had some connections.
1: She did. And, Fam- familia.
2: Yeah, and her acting skills leave a lot to be desired. You're diplomatic. <laughs> She's pretty terrible. She just is, and and. You know, I don't I think in this movie you don't have to be gorgeous because uh, it's not about looks but she's not very pretty either.
1: <laughs> she she really is an anchor to the uh the, the feel, the floating of Godfather 3. It is a very terrible film of of murder and all of this that you mentioned about Godfather 1 and certainly Godfather 2 has it too. But it really is a story of a family that's gone so dysfunctional that by the end of the lives of the main characters, there's really no redemption. There may be spiritual redemption in that there's a scene in the Catholic Church and there's all this, but there's no real redemption in their lives. They end
2: up. No, it ends so sad. And I mean, they. They've lost so much of their family, and they've lost so much of their business, and you know they aren't able to function as a uh, good mob kind of institution. I don't know that seems like a, a wrong term to use, or good and mob together. But the whole the whole idea of their family, it's not running the way that it should, or or it could have run.
1: So by the time the character arc is over, with all of the Corleones, the Corleones. You're left with a feeling of despair. Now, why is that still a good part for this movie? Because the lifestyle is pretty brutal. Yeah,
2: the I reality guess you, of you, the reap, message is you what? reap what you sow, man. That's exactly you know? it. It's, it's definitely an interesting take. A, a take on reality of what, what it is. If you live a bad life, you're going to have bad things. And that's unfortunate, but... If you choose not to build into relationships, then those relationships are going to be gone.
1: Yeah. Well, Meg on the Megometer, Godfather 1, 2, and 3, where 5 is a total absolute megathon. Where are we?
2: You know, I got to say like a 4. You know, I don't love that feeling of despair, but I do like the arc of the movie, and it is so interesting, and it's so epic. and And so many big actors... Um, that do a really fantastic job. but I like a good ending. So I'd say a four. Sunday, Monday, Monday happy days Tuesday Wednesday, Wednesday happy days Thursday, Thursday, Friday Thursday. happy days The weekend
0: comes My cycle humps, ready to race to you These
1: If you don't know what that theme song was the theme song for, then you weren't listening or you weren't alive in the 70s baby. Happy Days. It's the it's the theme song that everyone knew when they had Richie Cunningham and the Fawns, and they had all the different characters that were a part of that. And that television show had that theme song every year as it played, and every year as the characters came and went, and every year as the show grew and all of the teenagers aged. And everybody knows that that was the theme song To happy days. But maybe not. See, with fun facts and trivia, I always love to dig in a little bit more. So, what was the original song? Well, believe it or not, it was this. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around.
2: Tonight,
1: put your bad Join me home. We'll when- Happy Days came out in 1973-74, and when it did, it was a mid-year replacement for another show. They made it so quick, so fast, that they didn't even have a theme song. And so somebody pulled the, off the shelf, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets, and they used that song for the intro to the original season of Happy Days. And when they did, that rejuvenated that song again. Why do I say again? You see, another the f- really fantastically interesting uh, odd points of music. Uh, Bill Haley in the comments, Rock Around the Clock should never have ever really existed. Let me explain why. You see, in 1954, 20 years before this television show ever happened, Bill Haley in the comments recorded, We're Going to rock, rock Around the Clock. Um, And when they did, they did it as a side B to a song that they thought was just going to be absolutely tremendous. And the song was called Only One Man in Town. When they did it, they had a three-hour studio time where they worked repeatedly over and over again on this song, uh, 13 Women from the album One Man in Town. That was the song that they spent most of their time on. And they realized, they looked up at the clock and they went, holy cow, we've got 40 minutes left. That's all we paid for. And they said, what about our side B? So all of a sudden, they had a studio musician in with them, and they began to just ad-lib the song. And of course, Bill Haley and the Comets had played it at dances and other things, but the studio musician had never played it with them, had never done any of the riffs, had never done any of the lead guitar parts. And they only had 40 minutes to make it so. They got everything set. They got all the mics organized. They got it all set to go. And then they recorded two versions of it. Well, um, in the 1950s, the idea of editing sound, editing tape, was a very difficult thing. Very, very difficult. And those two um, examples of Rock Around the Clock were actually turned into one. They brought and cut and pasted, and it absolutely was remarkable. And they, they, they thought, well, this is a good side B. And then when they released the album, they released the song, um, the usable take that they had of uh, 13 women, Nobody bought it. Nobody bought it. People said, nah, this, the, you know, we're, we're really not interested. Thanks anyway. The market did not accept it. Well, here's what was interesting. There was a, uh, an actor in the 50s um, who, his name was Glenn Ford. And Glenn Ford had a, a young son named Peter. And Glenn Ford was starring in a, movie called Blackboard Jungle and Peter would go to the set, he was just a little kid, he was you know, between uh, 12 13 years old type kid and and as he was there he started thinking wait a minute, and he had bought the song um, that Bill Haley and the Comets had done on their single and had played the back side of it, Rock Around the Clock so at night the little boy said to his dad, "Um, whatever song you were thinking about for this movie, why don't you use this? So he played it for his father, and the actor, Glenn Ford, loved Rock Around the Clock. And at the point at which he brought it back to the producers, he said, this is what we're going to use to play over the opening credits for Blackboard Jungle, which is how it became the pop sensation. It sold million copies, millions and millions of copies in a single month in the spring. Of 1955 Uh, A song, a throwaway song A song that meant nothing To many people Because it was a side B Side B's never really Are there for any purpose Other than to make side A Have a reason for existence So for me As a person who enjoys music And enjoys the history of it When I think about the clarion call of music For the 50's and the 60's and then ultimately into the '70s with Happy Days. Um, all that I, all that I can ever remember when I think of the, sort of the Thomas Jefferson or the John Hancock of rock and roll, is Bill Haley in the comments, and this song, again for you. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock, five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock rock, Nine, ten, 11 o'clock, twelve o'clock rock. We're gonna rock around the o'clock tonight. Put your flatrags on. Just Around the Corner is a feature of DennisMansfield.com. For more information on the travel episodes, please text Brown Sign Bros, that's Brown Sign Bros, to 72000 or Brown Sign Faith to 72000. Visit Amazon.com for books by Dennis Mansfield. I think you'll like them. Many thanks to Michael Seals for production work and for the original music. Acknowledgements to the Traveling Wilburys to Nat King Cole assorted rock and rollers, whose songs we occasionally sprinkle throughout the episodes. Kudos to Meg Rowe, History.com, Ken and Colin Mansfield, and My Bride Susan for their inspiration and information, for their hard work and encouragement to make possible Just Around the Corner. And finally, a wink and a nod to Kevin Miller in the morning on KIDO Radio, Boise, Idaho. Till next episode, this is Dennis Mansfield.